what, what would a community look like if Jesus were king? Maybe to make it a little bit more personal, what would this community look like? What would Carpinteria look like? What would Santa Barbara County look like? What would the coastlands look like if Jesus were king? And what should the church look like since Jesus is king? Well, the book of Acts gives us a little glimpse into uh, some of the characteristics of what a church would look like where Jesus is king, where people are filled with the spirit and being led by the spirit in their lives. There's many characteristics, but one of them that we're going to look at from Acts 4 today is that the, the community would look like a people who were radically generous, walking out in radical generosity. So Acts chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 32. I'll be reading and preaching from the NIV today. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your great love for us today. As we woke up this morning, your mercy was new for us. We want to rest and bask in that today. Thank you that you know each of us intimately better than we even know ourselves. And thank you that you are able then to speak to each of us in a very personal way from the exact same passage of scripture, through the exact same truths and songs, and through the exact same sermon, you are able to divide it up into hundreds of little pieces to speak into our lives prophetically. And so we ask that you would do that. We anticipate you doing that. And we, in response, say, okay, Lord, our hearts are open. Our ears are open to hear and receive what your spirit would say to us today. We ask that you would do your work in us and that we would respond to who you are today in the perfectly right way. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, our daughter is, our, our oldest is 17, which is crazy because she, w- we, when we moved here, uh, my wife Emily was pregnant and she was born kind of in this church and first place we lived was right across the street right here. Now she's 17. But when she was a little baby uh, growing up here in Carpinteria, I-, I used to be so excited for her to like get to her next developmental stage, right? And those of us who are parents can probably, uh, you probably know what I'm talking about, right? And so it was like, man, when's she gonna like finally focus her eyes on me? Because you know how like infants are all squirrely, right? And then one day they just look you in the eyes and you're like, oh my gosh, my soul, right? And then it's like, well, when's she gonna say her first word? Uh, when, when's she gonna take her first step? When, when is she gonna learn to go to sleep by herself, right? And there's all these like developmental stages and as she would come into these stages, I remember being so excited because I felt like whatever I could do to participate in helping her get to that next stage, I would do it, right? So I'd help her take her step and I'd repeat words to her that I would hope maybe she would repeat back to me. And every time she got to a new developmental stage, it was like we had together won this victory. I still remember 
uh, her first word that she spoke, we were living right here on Palm Avenue across the street from the pool, and she's in her back, the back bedroom, and I'm in the living room, and she's just laying in her crib, and I hear as clear as day, she had never spoken a real word before, I just hear, peekaboo. <laughs> Three-syllable word, first word, peekaboo. But there was one thing that I was not prepared for our daughter to do, and one word I was not prepared for her to say. It was certainly something I didn't teach her. She was probably two or three, and she was playing with a friend. And this friend had one of Selah's toys. And I remember watching from afar my daughter, like, well up with some, like, unpleasant emotion inside of her as she watched her friend play with her toy. And then I watched as this anger grew in her, and then with the the strength of Samson, she reaches over, grabs hold of the toy, rips it out of her friend's hand, and says, mine! All of a sudden, my like sweet, gentle, cute, peekaboo little girl had instinctively known how to be selfish. The truth is, we are no different. As human beings, we are all born with this selfishness in us. It's part of our sinful nature. The early church and their humanity would have been no different. And yet, it says in verse 32, that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. It's a very unselfish statement. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. What would it look like if a community had Jesus as their king? Well, it certainly wouldn't look like mine. It would look like a people who were marked by great generosity. There are a lot of things that we as a church ought to be marked by, but one of them is God's people should be marked by great generosity. Let's read it again, verses 33 to 37. I'll put it up on the screen. It says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. This is what this looked like, okay? But they shared everything that they had, unlike my daughter Selah. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The truth is this, in the body of Christ and in our communities, there will always be a plethora of needs. God has all the resources in the world to meet those needs, and he desires to do so. The scripture is very clear that God will meet our needs. And yet, the way that God saw fit then and sees fit now to meet those needs is not generally by dropping manna from heaven unless he has to, but it is to do it through his people. God has chosen throughout history, you may have been in Reality Carbonaria for uh, years, you probably heard this phrase, something like this, that throughout history, God has chosen to work through his people, not independent of them. This is how God provided for his people in the early church, as we see here in Acts chapter 4. The same way he does it now, God provides for his people through his people. And one of the great lessons of God's economy is this, that 
everything that we have received in the kingdom is actually meant to be given away. We have been blessed so that we can be a blessing. This is a truth that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, right? It's the Abrahamic covenant. God said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the nations. Several years ago, uh, when I was on staff at Reality Cart, um, my music career was starting to grow at the same time. And it eventually got to a point where I was like, gosh, I, I can't faithfully do both of these things. And God made it really clear that I was to go off staff here at Reality Carp and pursue full-time music. The problem with that was that I wasn't making enough money to do full-time music. And so it would have been very illogical to do such a thing. We had two kids. We had just bought our first house down in Ventura. Uh, and yet God made it so clear that it was like, okay, we got to do this. We got to take this step of faith. We thought for sure we'd lose our house, you know, we didn't know how to do it. Needless to say, we were in great financial need as I was making this transition. And my, my last week uh, here on staff at the church, some random dude who didn't even go to the church called the church office and asked to talk to me. And he said, hey man, I, I heard about what God's asking you to do and what you are in turn doing. And uh, he told me really clearly, I'm supposed to give you $10,000. And I was like, wait, what's your name? <laughs> you know? And uh, he was like, I don't, we don't need to like spend time together. I just, I just need to see you long enough to give you a check. I just need to be obedient to the Lord. And that was the beginning of God miraculously providing for us in a season where we had great need. But how did he do it? He did it through one of his people. He didn't just drop $10,000 down from the sky, although it's often what we kind of pray for, right? But God met the need through his people. That is how God miraculously provided. Nobody would uh, discount the miraculousness of that thing that happened, right? But that was the Lord, and the way the Lord did it was through his people. God always meets the needs of his people, but he does it most often through his people. This was true of the early church. This is true in my life. This is true in your life and in your spheres of influence. When you have a need and you don't have the resources, God will provide and he will do it through his people. But how does this happen? What does this look like practically? Was this back then some like super organized thing? Well, yeah, there was some of that. It says that they are at least from the houses that were being sold, they were giving the money, which would have been a gigantic chunk of money to the apostles. The apostles were figuring out how to distribute it because they probably had an awareness of some of the needs. But there was also other, just other needs being met on a one-on-one -on -one basis, right? They were going from home to home. They were spending time with one another. And so as needs would arise, it'd be like, oh my gosh, you just lost your job. Well, you know what? I have a job. They'd meet that need. It'd be like, hey, you, you don't have food for, or you don't have money for food. Uh, you know what? I have a little bit of extra money. Here you go. And as they were spending time with one another, as they were praying with one another, the needs were becoming uh, known and they were meeting those needs. They saw a need, they met it. When we see a need, there is a good chance that God is maybe inviting us to do something about it. Whew, okay, I'm gonna say it again. I'm gonna put it up on the screen. When you see a need, it may be because God wants you to do something about it. You see a need, you meet it. I, I see a need, I meet it. But Dom, dude, I ain't got no money to meet other people's needs. Maybe you're here, you're a college kid. You're like, yo, bro, I don't know what you know about college kids, but we ain't got no money. Listen, I get it. I've been a pastor and a musician my entire life. These are not lucrative careers, okay? You wanna have an excess of cash? You don't become a pastor or a musician. I, I get what it's like to not have an excess of cash. 
But let us be encouraged by this. Paul writes about the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians 8 and says this. Listen, these are poor people. Listen. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Whoa, okay, that's not the phrase that we, we, we're like, rich people, you give richly. He's like, no, even the extremely poor people gave richly. Their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able. Okay, there it is. It's a heart issue, right? They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The point is this, you do not need to be greatly wealthy in order to be greatly generous. You do not need to be greatly wealthy to be greatly generous. Some of us, if you're anything like me, it's like, yeah, Lord, as soon as, as, soon as I get, you know, an excess of money, I'm going to be so generous. I'm going to be so generous. That's not true. That's not true. If I'm not generous with the $5 that I have now, I'm not going to be generous with the $5,000 I have later, right? We don't have to be uh, greatly wealthy to be greatly generous. The Bible calls us the body of Christ, right? He's the head. We are his members. And so we pray things like, Jesus, let your kingdom come. We look at our community. We look at a crazy time like we're living in right now. And we're like, Lord, we need more of your kingdom on earth. We need more of your kingdom here in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our churches. Lord, let your kingdom come. And he says, yes, I want to. But I'm going to do it through you. You are my body. You are my people. So what does that mean, Zom? Do I what? I sell everything like it's talking about here in the book of Acts? I don't know. I don't know. This passage is not a specific command about exactly how to fulfill the calling of generosity. The point of this passage is not that everyone gave every single thing that they had away or that everyone sold every piece of property that they had. In fact, that's not even what it says. It says that from time to time, okay, so not all the time, but from time to time, some people sold their homes. But listen, there were other people who kept their homes and opened their doors. They were gathering from home to home, right? Where were they gathering? They were gathering at the homes of people who kept their homes with the intention of opening their doors. The point is the heart was the same. The point isn't that they did this or did that. And so here's like a perfect step-by-step instruction of exactly what it looks like for us to be marked by generosity in the church. The point is the posture of the heart. It is a heart posture of holding things so loosely that we are willing to even give them away when there is a need that needs to be met. And as God's people, we can and should do this. Christian, it doesn't matter the size of your individual bank account. God's people can and should be marked by great generosity. The question is, why in the world would you ever do that? I like my stuff. I get that it's the right thing to do. I've gone on, you know, mission trips to third world countries where I feel bad about all the things that I have as an American. And I'm like, I gotta like give more stuff away. But all of that is such short-lived motivation, not to mention that it's legalistic religion 
that motivates me? Like what, what would motivate the early church to do this in a way that decades later it was written about in the book of Acts that like this is part of what marked the church. This wasn't just a little fluke they have for a month where it was like everyone was generous for a month or a year. This was part of how they lived. This was their culture. What would motivate them so deeply to live like this? To have a mindset and a heart set like this? Well, God's people are moved to great generosity when we realize that we possess a greater gift. We are moved to great generosity when we realize that we possess a greater gift. When our second kid, Solomon, was, uh, you know, a, a toddler and his sister was a little older, Selah, the one I was speaking of earlier, um, she would often, sorry, Selah, but she would often take his toys from him and uh, this kid would scream his brains out, you know, and I don't know about you, but I don't like screaming babies. And so I figured out a solution to get my son to stop screaming his head off when his sister would take his toy. The solution, obviously, was for her to give him back the toy. But if I just ripped it out of her hands and gave it to him, then I'd have a screaming three-year-old instead of a screaming one-year-old, right? And so I had to figure out a solution to get her to let go and give back this thing. And here, here was my solution. This is not good parental advice necessarily, by the way. But I would find something that was better than the thing that she had stolen from her brother. I would give her a greater gift. And as soon as I would give her a greater gift, she'd be like, oh yeah, I don't need this anymore. Here's your toy back. And she would give it back to her brother. What could be so great that it would cause the early church and us to let go of our most treasured earthly possessions, even things that we had worked maybe really hard for? It would have to be something better than our most treasured earthly possessions. It would have to be something even eternal. Jesus told a story in Matthew 13 about the pearl of great price. Adam read it during our call to worship. It says in Matthew 13, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. Jesus was speaking about himself in this parable. What gift could be so great and so lasting that it would cause us to give up our most valued earthly possessions, to sell everything that we have? Jesus. Jesus is the great pearl or the pearl of great price. Jesus is the better eternal treasure. Paul said it like this in Philippians 3. He said, I consider everything a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What would make everything else seem like loss? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Did you catch the, the first phrase in our passage today? It said, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Hold on. Let me read it again, because think about yourselves and think about the person you're sitting next to. All the believers were one in heart and mind. All of the believers, all of them, 
Not these people in this community group who all gathered together because they all thought the same and felt the same about all the things in the world. All of the believers were one in heart and one in mind. Okay, 3,000 people were just saved, right? In, right before this, 3,000 people were just saved. All from different countries, Okay, so they're bringing with them all their cultural sensitivities. They're bringing different politics. They're bringing different languages. They're bringing different ideas about God. They're bringing different preferences. They're bringing different opinions. All of that came, and all of a sudden, that's the church, right? That's what's made up of the church. And it says all of those people were of one mind and what heart. What does that even mean? Well, to have the same mind and heart does not mean that you have the same thoughts, about every subject. It means that you have the same mental and spiritual focus. The early church did not see eye to eye on everything. They differed greatly in their opinions on many things, including food, clothing, language, cultural issues. As we see with Paul and Barnabas, they even had differing views on the way that they thought the mission of God should be play out and how they should accomplish the mission of God. But they all agreed on the most important thing. And they all agreed that that thing was to have the highest and preeminent place in their hearts, minds, lives, and church. They all agreed who Jesus was. They all agreed who Jesus was. And that is what united them. And that, friends, is what unites us. Not our opinions on this or that, it is Jesus. This last season has had a way of like bringing things under the surface to the surface, right? The heat of it, if you will, has brought all the like dross to the surface. And so all of it's exposed. Part of what's exposed is our, many of our strong passions about certain things happening. Right now, right here in this place, 2021, in the month of August going into September, there are a lot of passionate opinions about things, some of them contrary to one another. But friends, that is not what unites us, and that's not what divides us in the body of Christ, or it shouldn't anyways. There is diversity in the body of Christ on purpose by God's design. In fact, we should not strive for uniformity, But unity is always possible if we are united around something that is greater than our opinions. When we allow other passions other than Jesus to become the preeminent thing, the thing that we are most passionate about, that's when division comes in. That's when there is a lack of unity. But when Jesus is at the pinnacle, and it's like, okay, I I, I have strong opinions about this or that, but they, they are not my, like, strongest opinion, then all of a sudden we could be united even if we have differing opinions on traditionary issues. Why? Well, A.W. Tozer says it like this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. How was it that the early church was able to be unified even though they were so different from one another? And how is it that they were able to let go of theirs even to the point where no one had a need and they didn't consider their own possessions as their own? Well, listen, the reason they could be unified was it's the same reason behind why they could not be selfish. They found something more valuable than their possessions. 
even as they found something more valuable than their opinions. They found a greater treasure. They found Jesus. The trick to get my daughter to let go of something she valued wasn't to yell at her or to to force it out of her hands. It was to give her something better than that which she was holding on to. When we recognize that Christ is a greater and more valuable gift, then we too begin to hold everything a little more loosely. But it wasn't that the early church was just holding their stuff loosely. It was that they were willing to give it away as there was a need. What would cause them to not just hold it loosely, right? Not just let go, but be willing to give away their stuff to meet a need. And what would cause us to do the same? Well, we are moved to this kind of radical generosity when we are motivated by a greater grace. Friends, we should be, we are as believers motivated by a greater grace. This is what drives us. We are motivated by a greater grace. Again, verse 32, it says, and there was no needy persons among them. Okay, just imagine this for a second. In 2021, your community, this community, your church community, there's no need. Imagine it. There's no need. This isn't, they're not talking about heaven. This isn't kingdom come. This is like on earth, okay? This is, this is, this is on earth. There's no need among them. Imagine that. Someone who had a, needed a, a job, just got a job. Someone who didn't know where their groceries were going to pay for, uh, got, got money. Somebody who didn't know how they're going to pay their rent, the community was providing for them. Imagine a community like this where there was no need among them. This is what the early church looked like. One of the uh, things that brings me the, the greatest joy then as a parent, right, is to see my kids be generous. If you have kids, you've seen this. When they finally, like, share something, you're like, oh, thank you, Lord, right? See, as much as I was sad that my kids were like all the other kids in the world and selfish, uh, it brings me such great joy to see my kids be generous, right? I still, to this day, love seeing our 17-year-old, Selah. She is so stinking generous with her heart and with her love for people. I love it when I see my eight-year-old, Kingston, share something that is his, even if it, it's hard for him, share something that is his with his friends. My son Solomon turned 13 this year, and all he wanted was money, right? I was like, what do you want? He's like, I just want money, and he invited all these people so he could get more money, and I was like, oh my gosh, this kid. He got like 700 bucks, okay? And a few days after his birthday, I was like, hey, dude, what are you going to do with all your money? Here's what he said to me. He said, oh, man, I, uh, so-and-so has been wanting this skateboard for like months. It's like 200 bucks, but like his parents won't buy it for him. So I think I'm going to buy it for him and surprise him. And I was like, oh, all right. And then he was like, and so-and-so wants these sneakers, but they're too expensive, like 150 bucks. But I think I'm going to buy them and just bring them to school and drop them off on his desk and just surprise them. And he starts going down this list that he's been making for the last few days of all the ways he wants to, to bless his friends, right? He's experiencing the joy of being generous. And in turn, I'm like, you know, getting teary-eyed like I am right now. I'm like thinking this kid wanted 700 bucks just so he could spend it, although that was, you know, maybe part of it or whatever. But his heart is welling up with joy as he's experiencing the, the, the joy that is found in generosity. My heart welled with joy at this. He had received... But instead of holding it tightly, he held it loosely. But it wasn't just that. He gave it away. There was no needy persons among them. This means that the people in Acts chapter 4 weren't just like willing. 
They were actually looking for opportunity to give that away. The question again is why in the world would you do this? Why? What would be so motivating to make you not just hold things loosely, but look for opportunity to give them away? The end of verse 33 answers the question. God's grace was so powerfully at work within them that there were no needy persons among them. The NASB reads, abundant grace was upon them. The literal translation reads, mega grace. The mega grace was so at work within them that it was motivating them to give away. Listen, if possessing a greater treasure is what motivates us to let go of our possessions, then it is greater grace that motivates us to give away those possessions. I'm going to read it again. If possessing a greater gift is what motivates us to let go of our possessions, then it is greater grace that motivates us to give away those possessions. Grace, simply defined, is undeserved favor, right? It is receiving something that you don't deserve. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. Friends, everything that you have is ultimately a gift of grace from God. It is from undeserved favor. Well, hold on, Dom. Like, yeah, that's cute and everything, but what about, like, the things I've worked for? Some of the things I have, they don't seem to be, like, God's undeserved favor. I I worked my butt off to get those things. I understand. I, I get that. I've worked hard for some things, too. But where'd you get the skills for the trade that you worked so hard to get the things? Oh, I went to school, man. I worked my butt off in school. All right, where'd you get the brain to figure out how to do school, right? When you trace it back, ultimately, the resources that are necessary for us to even know how to like process information ultimately comes from God. Every single gift that we have, everything we have, everything we possess in this life is ultimately a gift from God. Whether it's some miraculous story like I shared before or not, even if it seems like I've worked to get here, the resources that you had to even work to get there ultimately always go back to God. Everything that we have. And when God gives to us, he doesn't give to us in response to us like uh, doing something. He's not like, oh man, you've been... You've been performing so well. Here you go. I'm going to bless you. Or like, ah, man, you're so like inadequate. I'm going to have pity on you and just like give you a little extra. The Bible says that God gives to us. Here, the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave. God so loved the world that he gave. God so loved the world that he gave. God gives to us because that is who he is. He is generous in nature. He is gracious in nature. He gives to us what we don't deserve. What we do deserve is death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, right? That's what we have earned ourselves. So anything other than death is like, oh, wow, we're, we're like in the black, right? We're not in the red anymore. This is like abundance. If what we deserve is death, anything above death, we should be like, thank you, God. I, I think you need to hear that today, Christian. If, if you've received nothing else in this life, like, dude, I, ain't, I don't got nothing though, dude. I don't have anything in this life. If you've received nothing else in this life, you have received abundant life in Jesus. You are forgiven. 
He has given you the gift of his Holy Spirit. He has given you the gift of himself. The early church, friends, they may or may not have had a lot. This church that Paul was writing about, he said there was extreme poverty. They didn't have a lot, but they had the greatest treasure of all. They had received Jesus as a gift of God's grace. They had received salvation as a gift of God's grace. They had just two chapters earlier received the Holy Spirit as a gift of God's grace. And yeah, maybe they even, some of them, had some physical blessings. But those, even those, were a gift of God's grace, a gift of God's mega grace. But what we see here is that this grace was not only working toward them, it was also working in them, motivating them so that it eventually worked through them to other people, right? They were recipients of it and it overflowed so much that they were like, oh my goodness, whoo, and it welled up gratitude in them that it did something and then it motivated them to then let that grace work through them in the way that they were able to be radically generous, generous to those around them. Emily and I don't have a lot of money. My wife and I don't have a lot of money, but we do love to give, but not always. There are many times in my life that I'm like, I don't, I don't want to give. I don't want to give you my stuff. I don't want to share my toys. I don't want to give you my money. I don't want to share my house. I don't even want to share my food. There are many times in my life when I'm like that. Last year, we had a, bunch of money stolen from us from somebody who was deeply close to us and then ended up dying a little while after we never got it back and when something like that happens uh it causes you to want to hold on close or tightly to everything you still have right and anything you might have in the future and this is what i'm tempted to do i'm tempted to just like hold tightly like but what if what if i worked so hard for this? like what if i can't yeah, what, what if in the future I can't get it again? Or what if, what's going to happen if I give this away? Like, what if I need it later? Right? That's what we're tempted to do. That's what I'm tempted to do. But then I remember Jesus. And I remember the grace of God. And I remember Philippians that says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So if Jesus did not count his equality with God as something to cling to, then what right do we have to hold on to anything that God has given us. What would it look like if Jesus were king in our communities? It would look like radical acts of generosity. But how and why? Well, it wouldn't be because we suddenly started trying harder to be greater Christians. It would be because we were motivated by greater grace. If you don't hear anything else, hear this today, that radical generosity is a response to the radical generosity of God. As is all obedience in the kingdom of God. You can't just try harder. You must first recognize how good God has been to you and then respond. Generosity is no different. Radical generosity is a response to the radical generosity of God. Friends, this isn't communism, right? Communism says, 
What's everyone's is yours. This is Christianity. Christianity says what's mine is yours. Christianity puts the responsibility on the believer to respond toward others to the, God, to the way that God has treated us. To act there like we have, that God has treated us. Because he has done this, I will therefore live with others like this. And when we do this, the beautiful thing is that it actually puts Jesus, the generous one, on display. As he himself said, as I have loved you, so now you go love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. We want to see the kingdom of God in and around us. Man, we, we need the kingdom of God and all that is of his kingdom to come. But God brings his kingdom through his kingdom kids. And part of how that happens practically is by us giving away that which we have received. After all, isn't this what Christ has done for us? He gave us life so that we might have life. Again, 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. What would motivate us to live a life that is marked by great generosity? It is the great generosity of God. And so the way that that kind of like happens on a practical level for me and for you is for us to just rehearse all the ways that God has been generous to us, to rehearse the kindness of God toward us. And that's what we're gonna do as we enter into the second set of worship in a few moments here. We're gonna sing songs, friends, that help us uh, remember how, how gracious God has been toward us. And so here's what I wanna encourage you to do. I wanna encourage you to take this time, don't get up, don't start texting, don't start thinking about, you know, how good those tacos are gonna be or whatever, although they might be very, very good. But, but let's like think about, or, or maybe you do think about the tacos, but as we do it, bring it to the Lord, right? Like, gosh, God, even the food I'm about to eat, even that, even something as simple as that, thank you, Lord, that I get to have some tacos. It's one of the reasons why I don't pray before I eat. I like to pray during I'm, while I'm eating because I'm like, I take a bite and I feel a lot more heartfelt in my gratitude toward God <laughs> Right, let's, let's, allow, let's allow gratitude to well up in our hearts. Has God met a need in your life, a practical need? Man, let's spend this time saying thank you to him. Has God provided for you in some way? Let's spend this time to say thank you. Has God saved you? Let's spend this time to say thank you. Has he forgiven you? Let's spend this time to say thank you. Has he delivered you from shame? Let's spend this time to say thank you. Has he delivered you from an addiction? Let's spend this time to say thank you. What are you thankful for? Let's allow gratitude to well up in our hearts. Did you have a beautiful walk on the beach with somebody you love yesterday? Let's say thank you to the Lord. Let's allow gratitude to well up in our hearts. And as we do, it'll begin to overflow to the point where we're like, gosh, man, I, I don't need to hold so tightly to the things of this world. I found a greater treasure in Jesus. And we will become so overwhelmed with his grace in our lives that we're like, you know what? I want to respond in that same way. God has been so gracious to me. I want to be motivated by that grace toward others. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for the way that you have been gracious toward us. We are so thankful for you saving us. I would be so lost, God, 
if it wasn't for you saving me. I'm so thankful for the few really close friends that I have in my life. So thankful for brothers and sisters. We are so thankful here today, God. We ask now that gratitude would well up in our hearts. We ask that worship and adoration would well up in our hearts. We ask that affection for you, Jesus, would grow greater than any other affection. And that as the affection for you grows, the affection for other things would would diminish and be put in its rightful place. That as you take the place on the throne of our lives and hearts and pocketbooks again, that other things that we exalted would just take their rightful place. Some of them are fine things. They don't have to go away, but they do need to be put back in, in a, right, a right place. And so we ask for uh, grace that you would help us to, to participate in that, Lord. And I ask for anybody here who has not yet received your gift of salvation, that you would move in their hearts right now, that you would show them just how much you love them. You would show them that the gift of life in you is the greatest treasure anybody could ever hope for.